Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. I'd like to share a warning about today's episode. We'll be covering a very important and serious topic, and we'll share some stories that may be disturbing for some listeners, so please be advised of this if you've got young ones with you today as we discuss missing and murdered Indigenous people. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutha Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chata Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Before each episode of this podcast, I meet ahead of time with my guests in a preparatory visit so I can make sure I really hear their stories so I can think through how we should best present the information to you, our listeners. I usually walk away from these meetings with goosebumps pretty much every time, you know, just such beautiful and interesting stories and sometimes devastating stories as well. But after this pre-meeting, I walked away and bawled my eyes out. Today, my guest is Vaughn Satoke, and not only does she have some important information to go over with us today, but her story is heartbreaking, but also inspiring. I hope when you're listening, you'll carve out some time to just really listen. Please hear, and I mean really hear, Fawn's story. Many people who have gone through what she has didn't survive, so to me, she's a walking miracle. Fawn, I'm grateful that you are sitting here in front of me today, and I want everyone, everyone to hear your story. But before we get to it, let's walk through some information. And I also have to say congratulations for kicking COVID in the rear. It knocked you out for a few days, but you got back up. 23 days to be exact. Wow. Ooh. And you were in the hospital that most of that time or all that time? Um, well, twice in two different circumstances. And both times I was sent home, which was I was completely grateful for, um, just to receive some immediate care, the care that I needed, and uh, was actually life-saving. Thankful, I'm sure, for all the doctors and nurses who did a great job getting you through that. And thank you for posting here and there where you could to let us know how you were doing, because we were all so worried. Yes, yeah, so that experience was really uh, traumatizing, and I'm actually thankful for the circumstance that I went through and endured and conquered, it was very different than any type of sickness or illness I've ever felt in my life. And I would never wish what I had upon anyone. It was the most scariest time of my life. 
to actually have to call 911 on yourself and then pass out wow. uh, is amazing that they found me, was able to um, tend to me, take care of me, and got me to the hospital, and I was able to receive the care that I needed, and I'll never forget that feeling. I did have a few spiritual encounters during my time, which I will actually plan on giving my uh, testimony at church on Sunday. Yeah. Do you want to share any of those now or save it for another time? Uh, there are a lot of non-believers. And some people will question, you know, well, did you have fever during that time? Or, oh, you were just sick? Or, you know, you were imagining, you were seeing things. I, I do not believe any of that. Um, I know what I see. And I know what Doggy was showing me. We believe as, as Cairo people that death, the closer you are to it, is the closest to heaven or hell that you're going to be. Um, whether someone passes away in your arms, that's the closest you're going to get to that point, um, other than it happening to yourself. And at one point, my blood pressure was 80 over 60, and that was probably one of my lowest times. The spiritual encounters that I felt really brought me closer, my, my relationship to Ducky, and, and really showed me what I want to do in life and how I want to live even more so, which was actually something I had been praying for. I'd been stuck in a, in a spiritual rut, if you will, for a few years. Um, I didn't feel like I was moving any forward or backwards at the time. Mm -hmm. But through this encounter and what I experienced, I feel as if I've gone a little bit further in my walk, definitely. And I do know, I can say this, and I told a couple of family members this, and, you know, they're like, don't say that. And I'm like, no, I'm going to say it. But, like, I, uh, you know, before I was very scared to, you know, see death. I was afraid of it. Um, and I was a hospice worker at a young age. At the 21, I was a hospice employee. So I've seen, I've seen a lot of it, and uh, I was afraid. And after my experience and, and what I felt and the spiritual encounters I had, I'm no longer afraid. Wow. That's inspirational for all of us. Don't be afraid. Avoid it, but <laughs> don't I, be afraid. Uh, I had um, this tremendous feeling of security, safety, and the only other way I can say is tranquility at my lowest healthy point. And it carried with me even after I came out of it and woke up for another day and a half. It was literally like a high on no medication. I was still coming out of where I almost went, I believe, I don't know how else to say it, but I was at peace, I was calm, and I knew where to direct my faith. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that with us. We, we appreciate that, and I'm so glad you're feeling better and that you're here to talk about some really important things today for us to share with our listeners. So I'm sure many listeners have probably heard of the acronyms MMIP and MMIW. Why don't you share more about what those acronyms mean? Missing and Murdered Indigenous People and Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Although it's two separate acronyms, we still work together as one. For our Kiowa chapter, I chose MMIP because for us as Kiowas, it's about the people as a whole. And we are the Kiowa chapter, not affiliated with the tribe. We are Kiowa, so we are the Kiowa chapter. And we do things in a certain manner, which is what I would say, Kiowa way, our way. We do things differently than most tribes in general in anything that we do. And one thing that I was taught by both of my, my grandparents, grandpas and grandmas, is to pray before anything. 
and pray after. So we always enter everything with a prayer and we always end it with a prayer. Love that. And as you mentioned, you are the president of the Kiowa chapter of MMIP, and we'll share a whole lot more of that about that as we go. And I'm glad to see that this seems to be getting more attention these days. Just recently, Dateline even devoted a whole week to MMIP stories and awareness. That was great. A few stats for our listeners. Name us. So NAMUS, which is National Missing and Unidentified Persons, has a site that I'll post on my Native Choctaw Facebook page as well that lists the most recent number of American Indian and Alaskan Native missing persons. Something I noticed is that the top two highest states with Indigenous missing persons numbers are Alaska and Oklahoma. And here we are today in Lawton, Oklahoma, talking through this together. As of June of this year, 2021, Alaska has 292 missing indigenous persons and Oklahoma has 79. Interestingly enough, though, Alaska has nearly four times the amount of missing persons than the next highest being Oklahoma, yet Alaska has 730,000 people where Oklahoma has 4 million inhabitants. I, I was actually, were you surprised by that too when you saw that? Not after the cases that we've worked and gone through, that doesn't surprise me. 69% of these are male and 31% are female. And that actually surprised me too. I thought there would be more women than men in those stats. But focusing on just indigenous women for a moment, did y'all know that indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be murdered than an average citizen, according to the U.S. Department of Justice? NativeWomensWilderness.org states the following stats. Murder is the third leading cause of death for indigenous women from the Centers of Disease Control. More than half of indigenous women experience sexual violence, so 56.1%. Indigenous women are two times more likely to be raped than Anglo-American white women. Now, before we get into the good work that you personally are doing to help with the solution... Let's learn a little bit more about you, Fawn. I mentioned to you the other day that I loved your name because it's so unique, and I'm sure you hear that a lot, but what was it you said back to me? I have been told so many different things, but that I hated it. (laughs) Hate Uh, your own name. (laughs) I did, especially when I was younger, because I heard so many jokes, and then as I turned a teenager, words that kind of sounded like my name were thrown around as well. But my mom said when I was born, I was so small and curled up, I looked like a baby deer. Oh, it's so cute. That's adorable, actually. I love it. Your mama looked at you all curled up and said, there's no other name for this little baby girl than Fawn. And so you're from two tribes, correct? Yes. I'm three-fourths Kiowa and a quarter Comanche. Okay. And where did you grow up? I grew up in northern Oklahoma in Noble County in a little town called Red Rock, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And you were a preacher's daughter, right? So probably moved around quite a bit. Yes. Every two years, dad was placed in a different church. I was lucky enough in Carnegie, he got placed there for several years back to back. Okay. Yeah, your daddy tells a funny story about how you grew up around the Odo, Missouri for a good part of your life in Red Rock. So when you moved to another town and at school, they asked what tribe you were from. (laughs) What did you say? (laughs) I'm Oto. And I tell this a lot, too, because I had no clue. I thought I was just like my friend. (laughs) adorable. So you were in Red Rock, but then you finished high school elsewhere and had an interesting fact about your diploma, right? (laughs) I had jumped school so many times. I was fortunate enough, again, my dad was was an educator. So wherever he went to school, I could go to school. And then along the way, um, there were other schools where I had either attended for a semester or two, but I finished at Elgin High School and Carnegie High School. Two high schools. Yes. And I had um, two diplomas, one from Carnegie and one from Elgin. And 
graduation was on the same night at both places. And believe it or not, I made it to both rosters. <laughs> uh, I did attend the Carnegie graduation. I received my diploma there. And then I went to Elgin that following Monday, I believe, and picked up my other diploma <laughs> from them. And they, I, my name was on the roster and everything that they had going on. So if anyone says, are you educated? Yeah, I am. Doubly educated. <laughs> Check this out. <laughs> now, but there's a reason behind all that, right? I mean, your junior year was kind of a tough time for you. It definitely was. I was basically done with all of my classes my junior year, and I was going through a lot of stuff as a teenager, not just your regular stuff, on top of other stuff. I had some mental health issues, but I was a Native American teenager living in the country with nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. So I dropped out of school, and then I dealt with some mental health and personal issues, and then turned it around and over the summer and at my senior year, I was able to graduate. I was enrolled in both high schools so that I could do so. Elgin had after-school hours, so I was able to go there and attend as well. Carnegie during the day, Elgin in the evening and summer school. It was a time to prove to myself. I lost uh, a few friends at a young age and my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And I over- overcame all that and came back with the vengeance. And, yeah, and I was able to graduate with my class. That's, I love the story and it's a great opportunity. I mean, I say I love it. It's difficult for you, but that coming back with a vengeance and it's a great opportunity for anyone going through the same thing. You can come back with a vengeance. You can turn it around and maybe even graduate with two high school diplomas, for instance, (laughs) you never know. And so you went on to college and really made your mark there, right? Correct. I did assist with bringing a female Native American sorority to Cameron University. And they are still going strong. Even all the way to this morning, I've seen something that they had put up, and they're still out there encouraging and and offering uh, their self as a safe place for anyone who's going through any type of issues, whether it be anxiety, stress from school, or whatever. So it's great. they're still going strong. It's great. And I was the president of the Native American Student Association. In the process of, right now, I'm in the process of going to lay leader school with the Oklahoma Indian Methodist Church. And at the end of November, we'll complete uh, my classes and we'll be licensed as an armed private investigator. That's awesome. Now, there's a reason why that being licensed as an armed private investigator is significant in this story, and we'll get back to that soon. For the past 20 years, you've done so much in healthcare, almost everything except for being an RN, right? Correct. And that's actually what I was going to do. Um, COVID hit and changed my mind. <laughs> wow. It was that impactful, right? Yes. I remember you talking one day and you said, CNA, phlebotomy lab, I see you doing COVID as a cardiac monitor tech. I mean, you've done quite a bit. All this while being a single mom, my hat's off to you. And I pass meds. I've done assisted living, a nursing homes, hospital, hospice care, everything but home health. It's a lot. And so you have a kid in college right now. Congrats on that. Making it through freshman year. Yes, and she's doing ecstatic. She was just sent me an email. She sent all of us an email two days ago from her algebra professor saying that she's doing so great. Everything's 100 that she can actually go ahead and finish out that and begin algebra 2 and be finished with it as well semester. Fantastic. Congrats. One smart kid. And then you have another one at home, right? And tell us a little interesting fact about your oldest right now. My oldest is working to be an MMA fighter, and he's also getting into the ministry in the footsteps of my dad. Um, Wow. And I also have a cousin, Manny the Dragon Murrow, who's doing really well as an MMA fighter. He's a 
involved with Bellator. So he's really good in his profession. He plays native music when he comes out, and he carries our Kiowa tribal flag. And quick tidbit about that flag, I took it to Standing Rock. Oh, wow. So the wow. same flag he carries. That's awesome. Well, he seems to be doing well out there. Check him out, listeners. You can just search for Manny the Dragon. And good luck to your oldest, too, in that MMA pursuit. I've noticed there's a great amount of Native American men and women doing the MMA thing these days. Why do you think that is? I think it started with one or two getting into it and then passing it down to cousins, siblings, teaching them to learn what they've learned. Mm -hmm. It gives them an outlet. We're a tight-knit small community, so once one of us does something, a lot of us follow suit. It takes someone in our community to kick down that door and let the presence be known. But yes, we're kicking down the doors of enemy. That's awesome. Listeners, keep an eye out for our native MMA fighters and consider supporting their work. Super exciting. You talk a lot about your dad and how he taught you to take pride in your work. Dad may not have mentioned it to you, but they were the owners of the restaurant in Carnegie for three years. And I worked there as their manager. It was called the Rock Island Cafe in Carnegie, Oklahoma. My customers were there before us in the mornings. <laughs> Uh, opened the doors at 6.30, and my farmers would be there at 5.15, Need some coffee. Waiting on me. They're like, you know, where are you at? I'm here. And, you know, we put the Native American population together with everyone else. We sold and profited more than double than what we bought it for. Um, so I learned from watching my dad, and he's always had good advice for me. Love that. And what a good man he is. So we talked about how you are currently working in the MMIP area and doing good work there. So tell us again, you know, your role as president and your mission. I'm currently the president of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Kiowa Chapter. Our mission statement is to provide support to all Kiowa and to all MMIP families and chapters. Thank you for the good work you're doing. And how far does your reach go? We're part of a 12-chapter coalition from Texas to Oklahoma sometimes also Nebraska too. And then recently you went on a memorial walk for a young man who was killed by the police. Tell us more about that. Yes, his name is Zachary Bearshield, and and he was killed by the Omaha police on June 5th, 2017. And we're helping in situations such as Zachary's and raising awareness. More recently, Silas Lambert, who was killed by the Anadarko police, and we raised $2,500 in seven hours by having a benefit powwow for proceedings for his mother. And she was able to go pay the lawyer fee that following Monday. So it's scenarios like that and others that we tend to help with. Such sad stories there. And although this is the Kiowa chapter, what's awesome is that you team up with other tribes as well, right? Yes. We work with the uh, Honkas, Osage. Within our coalition, there's so many other tribes involved. And we work with private investigators, the different name drops, Darcy Spoon, Olivia Gray, and, you know, they assist us constantly. And they do a great job of helping us find outlets, information, and places to help families. That's great. And so what's the typical scenario for when someone has been reported missing? Foot searches, boots on the ground. I'm still involved with the searches, and we're going so quickly Family members went to help, too, in searches. Uh, our last search was in Amarillo. And generally what happens is once someone has come across a posting on social media or however it happens, and they reach out and they'll let us know. And if they don't reach out, we'll extend a hand. Sometimes it's accepted, sometimes it's not. The majority of it, it is. 
And once that's been established, we make sure that the family gets in contact with the police so they can uh, get a police report. We don't technically get involved until that police report is made and there's an actual case number to the situation. And once that case number is established, we establish a flyer, and then we print, and then it's boots on the ground. Wow. And so something you also help with is runaways. Share more about that. Typically, with the police, if you have a runaway, you have to wait for a while before you can report the missing. But people can contact us earlier than the police. Yeah, so that family that's worried about their child or their missing elder or whatever it is, a lot of times they go to the police department and they're like, can you help me? Well, we have to wait 24 hours or whatever the number is. But with you guys, you're like, we're on it. We'll help right away. It's very good to know. Yes. Uh, we like to say, you know, jokingly, a big group of aunties will go on the hunt, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And typically, if you see a, a big group of aunties walking around in an alley and you're a native <laughs> child out there and you got something going on, you're going to notice that. And they come out or we, we find them. It's like anti-superheroes. <laughs> You'll need some capes out there. That's pretty cool. What are some other areas that you help with different scenarios and such? Sometimes it's a young mother trying to leave a situation or there's a missing or, or kidnapped even. We've had one kidnapping since January 1st. And it was the mother who was held at gunpoint and taken by the child's father. And drugs were involved, abusive relationship is another one. One night we got a call from a lady who said her daughter got hit in the head with a sledgehammer. Ugh. The daughter was able to go to the hospital because of her own circumstances. And sometimes it's because they're afraid of the threats that the abuser makes or because they themselves possibly have some sort of warrant or issue with the police or some you know, a, a child protective case going on or whatnot. And they themselves are, are intimidated to reach out for help. We started out to do missing, lost, and closed cases, but now it's into other areas like the kidnapping, abusive situations, um, intoxication. For, you know, sometimes they're afraid to call the cops because they're doing things that they're not supposed to. Um, I had a non-native uh, woman call me on a native girl that had been running from a guy, and she ran into this woman's, uh, almost ran into her home, and, you know, fortunately the woman was really accepting and understood the situation. The girl didn't want her to call the cops, so she reached out and called me, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and we take them to a place with an open bed or wherever needed, and we get networking with our other 12 coalition, you know, other coalition members, and we make it happen one way or another. We help with uh, rehab for assistance, too. Sometimes they have warrants, and they need to help without getting into trouble around the warrants. So we help try to save some. And can this sometimes be dangerous for those who are volunteering their time, like yourself? Yes, it can be very dangerous at times. I recently just got on a Zoom with um, another, uh, with actually a network, and she said uh, one of our uh, coalition members actually quoted me as being a gangster <laughs> in those <laughs> manners. You know, me and another chapter president, I grew up with her. Um, and we're, we're a lot alike in a lot of ways. And they're like, those are our two youngsters. They're not afraid to go into any situation, you know. And I said it before, if I had to go to battle, I'd want you on my side. <laughs> that's for sure. And, you know, I, my, myself have received threats. They'll think that we're hiding people from them or her or, and sometimes we're, you know, boots on the ground in the alleys and sketchy situations at times. We've had to walk in 
swampy areas and have even had to wear, you know, snake repellent. We work with AIM brothers and sisters as well for security. And the AIM you're talking about there is the American Indian Movement? Correct. All right. A lot of folks know them from, especially the 70s, when there were all the situations going on with AIM helping out. And So you're doing some very worthy work out here, obviously. And now, one thing that led you here, though, uh, to helping with MMIP was your own story. Yes. The story that I like to start out with is the February 8th, 2017. I was left for dead in the country, Caddo County, rural Caddo County, and... It was uh, in the middle of the night. It was still cold. Uh, I had on a hoodie, a t-shirt, my work jeans, and my non-slip work shoes. Because at the time, I was um, helping my parents run the cafe. And it was either, I was either going to kill him or he was going to kill me. And I was reaching for, you know, I always carried something in my door handle just for any type of circumstance. And I'm very, very fortunate for me that I did not find what I was looking for. Instead, I found the door handle. And in between times of him letting go to get a better grip on my hair, I managed to pull the door and get out in one full swoop. And once I did that, I ran across the, the road and I jumped a fence and I laid down on my belly. We had an SUV at the time, so it took him a while to go around the vehicle. And I believe those few seconds, extra seconds, is what helped me to hide. And I spoke to him after the situation because he was brave enough to come to my parents' house during a holiday season. And the only thing he said to me was he, he tried to uh, he tried to cry and tried to apologize. And he was obviously on drugs. You could just see it all over his face and... A family member of mine actually brought him there who was also on drugs and, you know, somebody that I stay away from anyhow, but he was crying and said, I thought, I thought you were dead. I thought I left you out there dead. He literally thought he'd killed you and then he moved on with his life. He was actually dancing at a powwow that next weekend. And this is your ex-husband? Yes. And did you have children with him? No, thank well? God. Okay. And so he comes to your house with your cousin and sees you and is like, oh, I thought you were dead. Unbelievable. I mean, when people told him that, you know, what was going on with me, because I had no contact with him. I guess it was more of those things, like, I have to see, I have to, and, and you know, he really was, I don't, if he was genuine or not, it doesn't matter, but, you know, apologetic, you know, and I thought you, you know, I thought I killed you, and I had this whole time, and I thought you were dead. And But, you know, his story to the so the police was, he woke up and I was gone. That was his story to everybody. He woke up and I was gone. And then he told everybody that I did that. That was just something I did. I just take off. Just run away. Her parents said she'd just leave some time. Mind you, he we had been in and out of our relationship for the past decade. So he knew that wasn't the circumstance. But yeah, and then he, he proceeded to continue to run the cafe like I was still there. It That only lasted two weeks before my dad shut it down. And they had a hard time getting rid of him. Oh, that it was insane. Him and his brother even thought they could walk into my parents' house and take things. Yeah, and you know that my dad caught his brother in in their <laughs> home trying to take a television, saying, "This is my brother's." You know, like drugs will make you do anything. Yes, that's true. And so after all of this happened, I assume you went to the police at some point and reported what he had done. I uh, I waited a uh, five days. Mm -hmm. I went into hiding. And 
where I was, I know I was safe and I had family members, younger family members who, you know, like to go hunting, like to go shooting, had guns in the country. So they were like parading around in the country, you know, just in case and whatnot. And I'm thankful for them in their way of showing their love and protection for me. But five days went by and I had did, I did try to contact the Carnegie Police Department and was basically given the runaround and they would not take my report. What's that? I don't know. I've had issues with the Carnegie Police Department previously, as have others when it comes to domestic violence. They mm-hmm. think unless there's blood or somebody's dying that it's not a serious case. And even in those situations, because that's happened as well with other people that nothing's still done. And at the time, before he, that last month when he got into drugs the way he did, he was healthy and he was actually very athletic. He was a wrestler in junior high, so he knew what he was doing with his body as far as the physical aspect. He was 30 and could still do upside-down push-ups, so he was very still physically fit, and he was involved with the MMA circuit. Specifically, his casino for his tribe, he actually worked the fights there. He was, um, I don't know what it's called, but the counter or whatever that is, and we had gone and he had done uh, classes to, to be able to do so, and he was the only one who had this qualification um, to be able to do those things. One of the police officers there in Carnegie was also an MMA fighter for the same casino. Okay, so yeah, there were some ties maybe we there. Can put two and two together there. Exactly. So I go to I go to Ada, Oklahoma, which I praise Ada. I will always praise Ada. And I had it was a non-native place that I went to. Um, the specific place was owned by a judge and his wife, and they took very good care of the girls there and the, the families that came through and the home there. Um, it wasn't the best of stuff, but it was a safe place. And and once I got there, initially got through the paperwork and, you know, got processed, because that's a, that's a long, lengthy thing to do, they were stunned that there was no police report to follow. And I said, I tried, and this is what I was told. And, and I thought that it was the dispatcher. It was the dispatcher who is the one who was like, well, you're going to have to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that was it. I didn't even get to talk to a police officer. Ada police were stunned. So they came to where I was. They told me, they gave me instructions. They said, okay, we're going to fax you over one of our report forms. And then we're going to, one of our officers is going to come pick it up. We're going to send it to Carnegie ourselves. Nice. There you go. Yes. And that's exactly what happened. Thank you, Ada. Exactly. And once again, this is all non-native. They really, that proves something to me there. Then, you know, the following, whatever happened after that happened, if anything happened at all, I don't know. But I do know he ended up getting himself tangled in his own uh, situations with drugs and running from the police and stealing vehicles, you know, breaking and entering and and drugs just really got a hold of him. Okay. So after you filed the police report, then there was a court date. What happened then? Nothing really came about that. But after a year had passed, I was living in a completely different town. Um, I was going to school. I was living with my then boyfriend. Well, he's, he's still with me now, but he was just my boyfriend at the time. There was a knock on the door at our apartment, and I did, at the time, since it was so fresh with everything that happened still, basically, even though it had been over a year, I was very leery of things. So he went to the door, and it was a lady. She asked for me, and he was like, no, nobody by that name lives here. What do you want? You know, I live here. It's my apartment. Mm. And she proceeded to say that she was sent there from my ex-husband to get his belongings. What belongings? You had nothing. You left with nothing. <laughs> and it's been a year. 
over a year. What are you talking about? How did you find me? Oh, How did you know I was creepy? Here? And he just kept saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who you're talking about. Like, who are you? Yeah. Which she wouldn't leave a name, but she was an older Hispanic lady. I'm thinking someone he schemed and scammed and ran lines on to live type oh of situation. Gosh. So at that point, I was like, okay. And I had already had a, a protective order from our divorce that was granted by the federal judge. Okay. A federal judge. Wow. Okay. So that was tribally. It was handled tribally on the federal level. Got it. So what I needed was a state, a state one or from our county. So I go to the Comanche County Courthouse and I, I had filed for a protective order and I was denied. Why do you think you were denied? I mean, he even has a, a record. He has a record on file of all the things that he's done at this he's point. He's a flight risk. When they travel with him as an inmate, he's the one they put in the big SUV with the guns and all of that. And he's wow. one of those. He's, he's a flight risk. And yeah, knowing all of that, knowing his history, knowing our history, you know, uh, legal history, it was just like, no, no, next. Yeah. Just like as every other case. And, and, and this is why people don't come forward. They don't think anyone is going to help them. I was fortunate enough to have two advocates there with me. Had they not have been there with me, I don't know it, how I would have felt when I got denied. But I know as I sat there and it stewed within me, I was like, no, I'm not settling for this. This is not okay. So I waited till all his court proceedings were done until he was back in his office. And I found his office. I walked past his secretary. I went into his office and I closed the door behind me. I went straight to his desk and I put that paper on there where it was denied. And I said, you're going to change this. Yeah. And I looked right at his face as I was standing above him at his own desk. And I said, like I've said before, either I'm going to kill him or he's going to kill me. And this is going to be on you because you're going to remember my face right now. And held his eye contact and he said, okay. And he granted me a three year, which is, you know, better than anything. That's amazing. And, and I know it's just a piece of paper. However, if something did were to happen and I had to defend myself in a manner, I had that piece of paper to exactly. help protect myself. Exactly. Wow. And so your dad, it kind of tied to something that your dad used to say to you, right? Yes. At the age of seven, my dad taught me as I looked up to him because he was, he's six two. He said, Fawn, don't you ever let anyone make you feel like a stupid little Indian girl. And I said, okay, dad. Okay. And it etched in my mind. And wow. It's great. Sometimes you got to shut the door. Exactly. You got to shut the door behind you. And there's been three instances in my life where I've had to do that. And that was one of them. Incredible. And I'm glad the judge took note and was like, this woman is serious. And, and seeing that you were a human being, you're a human being asking for help. Please help me. One of us is going to end up dead if you do not help us. So I'm glad that that turned out okay, but ridiculous that you had to go through it that way. His excuse was, well, since it wasn't him at your door, I said, he sent her. Yeah. He sent her. And he knows where you live. So that opens a whole new can of worms for you and your boyfriend at the time. Wow. I don't even know how someone goes through all this. I suppose you either fall apart or become stronger or maybe a combination of the two. But now this was just one part of your story. Going back a bit, you went through something also devastating when you were a little girl. Tell us more about that. Yes. At the age of nine, I was sexually assaulted by a close family friend. 
an elder gentleman who is 72 years old. And to me, that was where my life began to change. I was only nine, but I know that's where the turnaround began from being a child to turning into an adult, even though I was nine. I was at home with my mother, and she was getting ready to go to the school, which is where she worked. It was a week before school started, so all the faculty and teachers and things were going back to school a week ahead, as usual. My dad was already at the school, so this gentleman, his name was Joe Ward. He is no longer with us. He passed away of cancer in his male parts, so God sees all, and he'll handle it accordingly. I was nine years old, family friend, nothing out of the ordinary, stopping by, except for the fact that he was alone, and his wife worked at the school, so she was at the school. He said, the puppies are born, which is something I've been looking forward to, as he was a German shepherd handler, or handler, trainer, and he had about, like I said, eight to ten dogs at once. They kind of came and went as were, where they went or came from, I don't know, but they only understood German commands, and each had their own kennel. And like I said, they were family friends. I'd been there numerous times with my parents, with uh, my friends, my friends' moms. And, you know, there was no indicator that I knew of. Looking back now, there was tons of red flags. However, you know, the gifts, the presents, the outlandish Christmas gifts, things like that. I remember thinking it was because he didn't have kids or grandkids of his own. So he just kind of tended to his friends' kids in that way. However, that wasn't the situation. He was grooming me for what he was possibly, you know, about what was possibly about to happen. The day of, he comes, puppies are born. Great. I want to go see them. Yes, I can go. Okay. My mom said I could go, so I went. I, in my mind, we were just going to go see the puppies. I was possibly going to bring one home. I think that was my my side note in my mind. Yeah, I'm going to bring one of these puppies home. (laughs) But we get there, and I stop in the garage where the puppies were. He goes into the house. At that point, I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what, but I knew something was wrong. I could feel it. So I go into the house, and I'm, like, standing around awkwardly, like, I'm ready to go home now. And he's sitting down in the recliner watching TV, and he goes to make me something to eat. He said, do you want macaroni and cheese? And I'm like, I guess, you know. And then he gets me uh, something to drink. I'm looking into the kitchen as he's doing this, and I seen him grab something from the windowsill, and I seen him put something I don't know if it was in my drink, if it was my food, or what it was. And then he put it back. And I, I thought that was weird to myself, but I, again, I was nine years old. So he brings it in there, and I'm like, okay. And I'm sitting far away from him on this other couch, and there was, the TV was on, and I'm just, like, trying to lap up this mac and cheese or something, and as soon as I'm done, he's going to take me home. Next thing I know, you know, things had happened, and the physical situation was not what should be. Once realizing what was going on after I was in a frozen state, for I don't know how long, to be honest. I started kicking and screaming and was just like, take me home, take me home, take me home, take me. That's all I could say. That's all I could get out was take me home, take me home. I get up from the couch and I start walking through the house and I go to where, and the the way the yard was set up, all the dog's kennels, the German Shepherds, they were full-grown adult German Shepherds. You have to go through them to get to the house. So you have to go through them to get out. I had never been through that yard by myself. We all knew how the dogs were. They growled, they barked, they were mean, is what I thought. However, when I walked through that day, not one of them growled, came up to me. They just acted like I wasn't even there. You know, I just walked straight through all of them and went outside the main gate 
and I got into the back seat of his vehicle in the passenger side and was just in shock. I remember just staring at one specific thing in the back seat and just just staring. And it took him a while to come out. Once he finally did, he got in the car, he started backing out and saying the usual basic things that they say, don't tell, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, oh, we're, you know, we're friends and just whatever. And, and even then I knew what was up and I was like, nope, nope. <laughs> Spitfire, I yeah. love it. I'm, nope, you just wait, you just wait. That's all I kept thinking in my mind. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to get out of this. And his house is down the road from the Frontier Public Schools, which is where both my parents were at this time. So he was near the public school. Isn't that convenient? Yes, very. And we're driving on this highway, and he's not slowing down. We're getting closer to close school. He's not slowing down at all. He's still going and still spitting his whatever don't tell, blah, blah, promises, this, that, and the other. And when I realized he's not turning into the school and there's no blanker, at the age of nine, I jumped out of a moving vehicle and I tucked and rolled and stood back up and ran. I was fortunate enough to have my kindergarten teacher actually witness me running across the highway onto the school property. And she was actually one of our witnesses in court. I ran to my mother, explained what happened, and... You know, from then on, it was a lot of family around me, a lot of love. I received a ton of phone calls from women of all ages in our community who had been touched by the same man and, you know, others who weren't by the same person, but that had gone through it and never said anything. And these were older women, some of them elder women. And they were just letting me know that they supported me and that I, I was there. They were there for me and that I wasn't alone and, and things like that. Wow. Next thing I know, we're in court, and this individual only got two years of prison. And what is crazy is, like you said, he had gotten away with this for a long time, decades. And here he was in his 70s still doing this stuff to children. Unbelievable. Let's say, you know, this animal, Joe Ward, who is now um, passed, may he not rest in peace, of all the lives he touched in a very bad way over so many years— I can't even imagine all the people who didn't say anything, who never got to say anything. They never had a voice. They were dealing with it for the rest of their lives. You've been dealing with it for the rest of your life. And you've turned this around to the MMIP thing to be of help. Try to do good out of something terribly evil, but just sick. What a sicko. And the fact that he was grooming you all that time with the puppies and the... the toy. I mean, I, it wasn't like a regular little gift. We, he bought me outlandish things as a child, things that I looked forward to. And again, there was never, he never, nothing. There was never nothing like that ever involved, ever even came up. There was, there was no, no nothing like that. And I had never felt uncomfortable. uh, There was never a situation. The only thing he had in his court was the fact that he owned several uh, bingo halls at the time. Mm -hmm. So he had money, he had access to lawyers, you know, things like that. So was he native as well? Yes. So he groomed you and probably other children, did terrible things over many years, and he had kind of that status thing going for him. So probably people wouldn't have even believed some some children in some cases. I think it's interesting that when you dropped and rolled, you had taken gymnastics. <laughs> so I'm sure that helped you when you had to try to make your escape. I mean, were you terrified when you jumped out of the car? I actually wasn't. I just knew I had to. I just knew Amazing. I had to get out of that car because 
to be honest, now looking back as an adult, I don't know what, where he was going to take me. I don't know where he was going to go. I don't know what would have happened to me. And isn't that the ironic thing that right now you're working with MMIP, you could have been one of those people. You could have been one of those children. And it just breaks my heart, Fawn. I'm so sorry. So I hope that this is a word for parents out there too. Obviously for the victims and their parents, none of that is, none of it is their fault. But if there's any precautions that can be taken on behalf of your children, please be thinking about these things, be thinking about why would a neighbor want to take my child to their house by themselves and all those things. Again, no one, no one should be blamed for anything except the perpetrator, but hopefully we can all be as careful as possible. And so just as you came back with a vengeance earlier in life with school and determining to graduate, you've turned these tragedies around to come back with a vengeance to help people who may be, you know, going through the same thing. And as you mentioned earlier, you're getting your armed private investigator's license and nothing is going to get past this Kyle Comanche warrior woman. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. And I hope that if anyone out there is listening and going through a lot right now, I hope Fawn's bravery to come out and tell these stories because it's not easy. We know that even in the community, a lot of times people don't want you talking. And the more we don't talk, the more this stuff is going to help happen. So and I, I'd like to encourage you guys out there, you know, please, if you, if you can, tell your story too. Say how you're coping and, and healing and moving forward. I hope this will give you hope and encouragement. So what are we doing about this problem of missing and murdered Indigenous people? The good news is we're gaining more visibility into this topic than ever. And 2019 and 20 were landmark years of even the government helping this cause. On May 5th, 2019, National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women and Girls was officially designated by the White House. And also in 2019, Operation Lady Justice or Executive Order 13898 resulted in a task for MMIP addressing policies, cold cases, data collection, and improvement in, in investigations. And Oklahoma's own state representative, Mark Wayne Mullen, Republican, who's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, introduced the Not Invisible Act signed into law on October 2020. This bill provides a committee of tribal leaders, law enforcement, federal partners, and survivors for recommendations to the Department of Justice and the Department of the Interior with the intention of establishing best practices for combating murder and trafficking of indigenous people. Mr. Mullen also introduced Savannah's Act, also signed into law on October 2020, which requires the Department of Justice to create standard protocols for guidelines and training for law enforcement agencies and tribes for investigation and technical assistance for MMIP. And then there's the boots on the ground warriors out there in the trenches and doing hands-on work like Fawn's team, the Kiowa chapter of MMIP. Fawn, where can people go to find out more information about your efforts? The Kyle chapter of Missing and Murdered Indigenous People, you can find us on Facebook, or you can also just email us at mmip.kyla.chapter at gmail.com. Great. So listeners can also check out the MMIW USA Facebook page, and all of these I'll post on my Native Chalk Talk page. And can any ethnicity join in these searches and other efforts? Yes. I do not say no to any type of assistance. However, we do our own background checks on people, uh, believe it or not, there are infiltrators, even in MMIP organizations. Wow. So, you know, and we've had situations where there'll be an open case where they're, you know, the person's still missing and all of a sudden out of nowhere, someone will post a flyer with found, but in case in, they have not, you know. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Just so that the search will stop. 
Wow. Yeah, there are just different instances where things like that happen or actual um, abusers themselves, you know, sexual predators. There's been several instances on, on social media where they'll have a powwow or they'll have like a, a red dress exhibition or they'll, they'll have an NMIW a moment uh, in the arena. And it's been pointed out several times that, you know, oh, that individual that's leading that parade in is actually a, a, a sex predator, you know, mm. um, and, and oh my like god that. you know sometimes people just want a spotlight or just want to be seen mm-hmm. you know and and some of it is you know is a trend if you will so we ourselves stay away from the handprint on the face i feel like that's kind of gotten i know it brings awareness and i'm not saying no to it and you know i'll do that when i need to or when we feel like there's a cause for it but for most it's just it's just kind of become a you know almost a a taboo thing almost, you know, for, right. for myself, because, you know, it's great to have a whole team of basketball or, you know, whatever they're doing in their group photo to, to have the headprint, you know, I get it. But at the same time, like you're raising awareness, but there's work. Mm-hmm. There's work behind that handprint. Great point. Absolutely. And if you're really going to represent that, find your local chapter, get mm-hmm. involved, ask what you can do or tell your story. Don't just, do a, a makeup tutorial and, and that be that. That's Yes, granted, it, it is awareness because it makes people say, well, what's that? But at the same time, there's other ways. And just like anything, things have to grow and change. Absolutely. Well, and something that I think is interesting, you and I were talking about earlier that I love my home state of Oklahoma. And no matter where you go, you're going to see this too, but I only know my home state, right? So there's a lot of things hidden. There are a lot of, I mean, even in my own community, I will say it, there was a lot of incest molestation and we just didn't talk about it. And if you tried to talk about it, it was shameful and you didn't want to hurt your community, hurt your family, embarrass yourself, maybe be called something that you don't want to be called, maybe told you're not believed. So you just don't say anything. And I have to admit, even now I am guilty of not wanting to say anything. And so I'm saying this so humbly and so transparent as I possibly can. I'm, I'm one of those and I don't want to be, but I, I hope that I can in some way inspire people to do better than I've done. So, and, and I think that you said that you've seen the same thing, kind of just a very wanting to keep it under wraps. But the problem is we see some of those people rising to leadership positions or being in charge of youth. And that's what's scary is we know what's happening and we're watching it happen and we're afraid to say anything. What I do is I just avoid those people. And I say it like that because with our confidentiality, with the people that contact us and reach out, you know, saying this has happened, that has happened. And sometimes it's it's mind-blowing. It I bet. really is. And, and it's touched home a few times for, uh, you know, myself because, you know, being in the southwest Oklahoma, you're related to everybody. So right. you can, you know, you, you nearly know both sides of the circumstance. I mean, not the circumstance, but both sides of the individuals that are involved. For me, what I do is if I see another individual getting mixed up with that specific person, I will reach out and not tell what has happened, but just say, hey, just be aware of your be surroundings aware. and, you know, just kind of you know, make sure you know who you're dealing with. Not everyone is your brother. Not everyone is mm-hmm. your uncle or, you know, your sister. Or, you know, it, it, it's even with women, you know. 
and, and natives, you know, we want to be like that. We want to be like, oh, that's my brother. Oh, that's my cousin. You and a lot of times, you know, it's it's situations like that where alcohol or drugs are involved and things things happen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The things you shared today are so important for people to hear so that we can all address what's out there, even if we don't want to hear it because it's so painful. I hear you, and I know you'll be heard by many others, and your words will help spring us all into action to do something about this problem that's way too common amongst our precious indigenous people. I'm sorry for what you went through, and I'm proud of you for sharing your story so that others can understand and be inspired to help. So do you have any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with me or our listeners? Just a step back sometimes, and no matter what you're doing in life, whether it's going to school or working or both or being a young mom, being an older mom, step back sometimes and really just kind of take a look at what's going on around you. There are murderers amongst us. There's still unsolved cases. There's still natives missing on our own land within miles of each other. We're being killed by the police, and our cases are going untouched. I know a lot of us like to carry what our elders taught us, and sometimes it's the most wonderful advice in the world. At times, it's things that they were taught in boarding schools, such as don't talk, don't tell, and that's not always the right thing to do or the right way to be. And if you can't tell the authorities, tell someone. It will help you with your own personal life, with your own thought process. Reach out to your local IHS, get in contact with the behavioral health, get into counseling, if at the least, give yourself a break, give your mind a break, because things like this can cause long-term health problems. You can develop anxiety, which can lead to PTSD. You can develop depression and even ultimately suicide. You don't have to endure those things because someone told you to be quiet. You have to speak up for yourself. And I'm going to give you, say it again, the same advice my dad told me, which is what my grandmother, Elva, told him. Don't let anyone think that you're a stupid little Indian girl. And that goes for grown grown women, because we still are children at heart. We're still that young girl just growing up, and she still hurts. Don't let her, don't leave her in the past. Reach out. Tell someone, even if that someone is myself which I've had done several times, and I don't mind any time of the night or day I'm here. Thank you so much, Vaughn. When I was preparing for this conversation, this Bible verse kept coming to my mind, and you know this verse, but I still wanted to share it with you and with our listeners. It's Numbers 6, 24 through 26. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's perfect and right on. This is how I know that uh, Daki is involved in everything that I do. Not only do I speak, but before I speak, I pray. And I pray this morning that my words not be mine, but they be his through me. And my Kaiwa name was given to me when I was 17 years old by Oscar Sudel, who is my neighbor. He came to my house himself, sat me down and said, I want you to come into the sanctity which is a Kyoto meeting. I want you to come in the, the teepee in the morning. I want you to come in with the water. And I got a name for you. And this was the same year I myself had some depression and, and suicidal thoughts going on. And my grandpa Nelson Bigbo had spoke on me in a same meeting that I didn't know about. So a lot of our Kaiwa men elders knew 
my situation and they prayed for me and I had no idea. And I believe that's why I was able to complete high school and do the things that I did through those prayers. And he said, I, I have a name for you. So I went in that next following morning and my Kaiwa name translates to facing God. So, and the vision was black water all around. I was dressed in completely white. My hair was down and there was just wind. And I was standing on a rock and I was glowing, which meant I was facing God. That's so beautiful. So I think face so to shine upon you is oh, right on. Wow. Unbelievable. Goosebumps. <laughs> Thank you again. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.